KBLA Talk 1580. It's a Freedom Friday around here. And we're doing this every Friday, the second hour of the show, uh, bringing in authoritative, interesting, accomplished voices in this space. I call it a comprehensive reparations conversation. All comers, welcome. 800-920-1580. Yes, the phone lines are open. Happy to welcome into the space right now the chair of the California Reparations Task Force. Uh, she's an entertainment and intellectual property attorney and a, repor- a reparatory justice scholar. Um, Camilla Moore, welcome back. Good morning, Dominique. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back. Yeah, great to have you in. Um, I, I hardly know where to start. These conversations have brought up a lot of um, concepts, I guess, around reparations, which I'm sure you've been over and over and over again. But part of the reason uh, that I want to have these conversations is so that we can all become clearer and more well-versed in what it is we're actually talking about. So um, let's talk about this this idea of, of standing. Like, as an, an attorney, explain what standing means and why this has been a challenge for people uh, seeking reparations, black people seeking reparations in the United States. Sure. Well, you know, standing has something to do when you're, you know, you're you're suing in court. And so when we're talking about reparations, we have people like the Adria Farber Paleman, Johnny Cochran, the late Johnny Cochran, the late Charles Ogletree, you know, these were our legal scholars who tried to uh, achieve reparations, particularly for descendants of slaves, direct descendants of slaves, descendants of enslaved Africans um, laboring in, in the United States, freedmen, you know, whatever you want to call it. They're legal scholars um, in the early 21st century who really tried, in the late 20th century, that really tried to use the courts um, to try to achieve reparations, um, you know, through different case law that we could talk about another day. But um, in short, though, we found through, you know, their trial and error that the courts may not be the best way to go about at least achieving or implementing reparations. And so that's why we're in this political or legislative phase where you see in California, but all across the country, you have, you know, municipal and state-based reparation programs popping up across the country. Um, through actual state legislation. So instead of going through the courts, you know, we're going through um, our state legislators, which is what the courts actually suggested should happen, right? First, go through the legislation, the legislature, and then see, let's see what happens. Yeah, I, I think that was really well said because that's that's the first approach, and people tried and tried. There were many cases, right? They were um, shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, by the courts. But I think maybe the conversation continues because if you have a state, city, or even a federal reparation, or even a private, it could end up back in the courts, right? Once it's accomplished, once yeah. the recommendations that your incredible task force um, has put forth are being implemented, it's likely they will be sued, right? Right. And just to answer your question more directly in terms of standing under constitutional law, there's like three different 
parts to it. You have to show that you have an actual injury, in fact, like a specific concrete injury. Uh, you have to show like a causal connection between the injury and the and the conduct. And then you have to show some redressability. Uh, and so, for instance, in one of the cases that Deidre Farmer Pelman brought uh, to the Seventh Circuit, uh, it was about, um, you know, trying to connect the dots between um, these um, present day insurance companies um, and seeing if there was a way to get these insurance companies to directly compensate descendants of slaves. And the Seventh Circuit, particularly Judge Posner, who's a really renowned judge, you know, he pretty much um, struck down the case partly because of standing, because he said in his in his in in the case that there's no way of actually tying, you know, the slave who was on the slave ship who got insured by Aetna to a person living today. They're saying it's too too amorphous to try to um, it's too amorphous to try to connect. The dots. It's, it's, it's nearly impossible, is what Posner said. And so, therefore, he found that there was really no standing because there was no way to directly trace genealogically, you know, each of the, of the, of the enslaved Africans on the ships, particularly to, you know, direct descendants of slaves. Um, and so, again, going through the legislative avenues is is much more um you know appropriate because once we do that even though it'll be challenged um you know the courts will still give reverence and deference to the fact that this is you know a political movement that is backed by the actual state legislature right here's a law here's a policy that has been um, enacted by by a state um or other body and now they're going to address whether or not it's constitutional whether or not it, it, it can pass muster legally. And it, could that come back to standing? I mean, it, it, it possibly could, but I think, um, I think it, if it goes to the courts, it's going to be, um, it's, there's going to be other, other issues that the courts are going to want to address. Um, you know, particularly the, you know, in terms of judicial, judicial review, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, the different levels of scrutiny and things like that. I think that's more, particularly more relevant, but it, it could be. So, I mean, it seems to me that one of the things that you guys did as the California task force is um, look at how to court proof or challenge proof the, um, the moves that you are making, the recommendations that were being put forth for reparations. Is that right? And and what did that conversation look like if if it is right? So I'm gonna say your question. In the final report you're asking about well, in the, yeah, I mean, in, in, in the process of getting to those recommendations, like what what uh, was considered to make this uh, reparations, these recommendations, you know, hold up to challenges? Um, well, I mean, in terms of the structure of the recommendations, you know, each of our recommendations are um, were tailored to eradicate the lingering badges and incidents of slavery that we identified are still present in the state of California. From racial terror, where we're talking about police brutality, and extrajudicial killings, to, you know, political disenfranchisement, uh, to racism in the environment and infrastructure, um, 
Uh, we were talking about black labor and employment and the wealth gap. So all of our 115 recommendations are directly tied to eradicating those lingering badness and incidents of slavery. So most of them are, I would say many of them are lineage-based, particularly those um, related to cash payments. So policies are directly tailored to descendants of American slaves, to freedmen, to um, this particular group of people. But then there are also um, some race-based recommendations in there, like, for instance, the creation of Black wellness centers in the Black community, right? And then there are some universal policies in there as well. Like, you know, there was one, I think, that was put in there, like making Election Day a federal holiday. And, you know, just to to briefly explain the import of that, for instance, it's a universal policy, so everyone would benefit by having a day off, but it's supposed to, in a way, address political disenfranchisement, address that lingering badge of incident of slavery that still kind of um, impacts, disproportionately impacts the Black community. So even though everyone to have a day off, you know, it's supposed to address the fact that Black people, it's supposed to, you know, one of the recommendations to address the fact and help Black people, you know, um, you know, disawaited and political disenfranchisement that we have in the state. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in terms of, um, you know, the courts, you know, the recommendations that are, you know, race-based, they may have a particular, you know, type of challenge. Some that are race-conscious, they may have a particular type of challenge. I think the universal ones we know probably won't have much of a challenge. And then the lineage-based ones are a bit more complex, a little bit more difficult to structure, to implement, but I think they would have, like the universal policies, um, the less less of a challenge than the race-based or the race-conscious one, particularly in, in the state that we're in, where Proposition 209 yeah. is the law of the land. Yeah. Uh, much to unpack there. So explain the difference between race-based and lineage-based. So it, it's based on, you know, classifications. Um, so race-based race is a type of classification, and lineage-based is a type of classification. Lineage-based, on its face, is a race-neutral classification. So um, under constitutional law, with, um, you know, a government is implementing a policy, um, the U.S. Supreme Court has particular tests um, that they employ to um, to essentially uh, see whether the governmental policy is constitutional or or not. So, if a government policy is trying to implement a race based policy, there's a certain test that's triggered by the by the courts to ascertain whether that race based policy is constitutional or not, and that test is called strict scrutiny. Uh, but all other classifications, like let's say gender, sex, there's a certain test that gets uh, triggered, and that's intermediate scrutiny. All other, you know, classifications um, like lineage, um, you know, being based on a descendant of slaves, being based on a freedman, that on its face is a race-neutral category, and that was affirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court June 29th um, in that affirmative action case, um, and so. Um, under a race-neutral category, the test that is triggered by the by the courts to ascertain whether that classification is constitutional or not is rational basis review. So there, under judicial review, there's three tests, strict scrutiny, 
intermediate scrutiny and rational basis review. Strict scrutiny is kind of the highest, most stringent, most difficult test to overcome. Remember, those are where race-based classifications are always scrutinized. And then uh, rational basis review is the lowest or easiest barrier to overcome. And that's where race-neutral classifications will overcome. And basically, just to conclude, under a strict scrutiny test, it's the government that has to, that has the burden of showing that their race-based policy is nearly tailored um, and it's, um, you know, nearly tailored to um, achieve a compelling interest in that this policy, um, they use the least restrictive means to implement it. However, under a rational basis review, the government doesn't have the burden. It's the, it's the, um, the person suing the challenger that has the burden to show that this race-neutral policy, um, you know, is, is unconstitutional. Whereas the, the, the government pushing this race-neutral policy really just kind of has to show, you know, there's a rational basis for why we're implementing this race-neutral policy. It's a, a much easier standard to, to overcome. And so that's where, you know, recommendations related to lineage, being a descendant of slaves, direct descendants of American slaves, of freemen, that's the area of uh, constitutionality of, of judicial review that those recommendations would land in. It's rational basis review. Mm. Whereas Talk- the race-based one would be um, strict scrutiny. It's interesting. Uh, Camilla Moore is our guest. Uh, she's an attorney and chair of the uh, was the chair of the California Reparations Task Force. We'll continue the conversation. If you have a question or comment, 800-920-1580 is the number to call. When we come forward, I want to um, go a little deeper why you say that the uh, anti-affirmative action decision uh, cements the idea that lineage base is is race neutral as counterintuitive as that sounds i also want to talk about how you're feeling about what's next how uh here in the state of california and how it impacts the national movement for reparations this is kbla talk 1580 and it's a freedman friday she's reclaiming her time on kbla talk 1580 more first things first with dominic de prima when we come forward the conversation continues right now, right now, right now with now, Dominique now. DePrima on First Things First. And you are welcome in 800-920-1580, 800-920-1580. So we call this thing Freedman Fridays, Attorney Camilla Moore, because uh, thinking about the Freedman Bureau and that period uh, after the Civil War when we were supposed to be um, <laughs> made whole, um, and not so much based on the sort of, I guess, factions, if you want to call it that, within the modern reparations movement where people uh, are very, um, very identified with certain words, certain phrases. And I know that there's a logic behind that. You know, some folks say, you know, we need to be classified as Negroes in order to make good on special field order 15. Some folks say it's freedmen that we have to be, um, and, you know, and tying that to a lineage kind of concept that we have to be, um, American descendants of American enslaved folks. We, you hear FBA, you know, ADOS, uh, DOBAS, and people feel really, really strongly about it. Um, I get that. I just want to clarify that, that I'm not trying to 
welcome one faction over another. That's why I call it a comprehensive reparations conversation, because I think we all need to listen. And that's what I'm trying to do is listen more so that I can learn and understand and find the areas uh, of unity, find the areas of progress and the pressure points where we can keep the momentum going. So I don't know if you want to comment on anything that I just said, um, but I, I would love it if you did. Um, I would say, no, I think what you're doing is a great thing, and I would, um, you know, applaud that and encourage you to continue the conversation and continuing to bring in um, people um, from all parts of the reparation space and movement. I try not to, um, you know, I try not to try to say it's about factions and things like that or anything Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. Everyone has their own kind of positions and that should be respected. But yeah, I think what you're doing is great. Just continue to continue to do it. Do you think that the, um, those, the way we address ourselves in terms of, you know, nomenclature is, is that from a legal perspective, I'm asking you now, not popularity or, or one person's, you know, (laughs) affinity or, or belief, but actually from a legal perspective, uh, do you think that is impactful? To be quite honest, where I'm at right now, I'm leaning towards no, to be quite honest. It doesn't mm, interesting. Really matter where what you kind of personally identify as, to be quite honest, I don't think that really is going to matter when it comes down to the legal things. Like, for instance, you know, the census, they're, cha- they're about to change up the categories for um, racial and ethnic um, considerations, or they're, they're, they're thinking about it, the U.S. census. And so, they had a series of town halls over the past year where people were calling in, um, you know, saying, no, I want to be identified as a black American. I want to be identified as the FBA. I want to be identified as Eidos. I want to be identified as Freedmen. And that has nothing to do with reparations. You know, that how you want to be identified. I, that's just kind of where I'm at, my, where I'm at, where I'm standing right now, particularly because the U S census, they have something on the, um, they said during the town halls, but they have this on the actual census forms itself where they say, you know, these categories, these categories, these categorizations, please don't get it misconstrued. This is not for the purposes of, you know, securing any like federal benefits. What, what else would hmm. corporations be other than you know, a federal program or federal benefits? So, um, yeah, they have not really have. Has that always been there? Ways, that but. has that little notification always been there? This category is not for the, <laughs> or is that new? I mean, are they see? Do they see us coming? I, I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> it's always been there, oh, and I know the census. Okay. It's important for people to take the census because you need to be counted because resources are allocated in a, in a sense based on, you know, who takes the census. But there there it's always been there in terms of like federal programs, benefits, policies, you know, their census that's not what it's for per se when we're talking about reparations. Right, not directly, yeah. Yeah, I mm-hmm. I took the census. I I always take it, but I I don't remember reading that, so I guess I wasn't paying enough attention. So you you mm-hmm. said that uh, the Supreme Court affirmed uh in June 29th that a lineage basis for um anything is not race-based. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? Well, you know, there is some language in the in the Supreme Court case, you know, pretty much saying that Friedman, you know, being a descendant of slaves, is, you know, an under-inclusive proxy for race, pretty much saying that it is a race-neutral um, 
term, but then also leading up to the June 29th decision you had in the oral argument, yes, it's conservative justices, yes, but that really doesn't matter. Um, like Justice Brett Kavanaugh, you know, asking um, the extremely conservative um, lawyer who was trying to, um, you know, attack Harvard and University of North Carolina's admissions programs. You had Kavanaugh asking, should asking Strawbridge, should a benefit given to descendants of slaves, whether a cash payment or something less concrete, like preferential treatment in college admissions, be considered race-based? And then you had Strawbridge, again, the lawyer who was attacking Harvard and University of North Carolina's admissions program, saying, yes, Freeman is a proxy to race, and therefore that should be seen as race conscious. But it was Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court justice, who concluded that actually it should not. You know, who said, though most, if not all, of the descendants of enslaved people in the U.S. are black, having a personal connection to historical wrongdoing would technically be a race-neutral factor, um, he reasoned, and thus fair game for consideration and admission. So let me give you a concrete example of what's been happening in higher education since that decision was came down June 29th. You have reputable um, high, uh, in- colleges and institutions now trying to play this calculated game that the state task force you know, set precedent to do in terms of nearly tailoring their admissions programs, not on the basis of race, but on the basis of lineage. And Inside Higher Education just came out with a really great article called Affirmative Action is Dead. How about reparations? That was released November 27th and said, as colleges reckon with the Supreme Court's affirmative action ban, some see an opportunity to return to the policy's early roots which is reparations through admissions. So now you have institutions like the University of Virginia. They announced a new policy where um, you can now write about your personal or historical connection to the history of University of Virginia itself, and that could get you into a a plus factor to get you into the university. Wow, that's right. We'll we'll continue this conversation after uh, news, traffic, and sports. Fascinating stuff. It is a Freedman Friday, the comprehensive reparations conversation only on KBLA Talk 1580. We wish you a holiday season filled with peace and love and a new year rich with blessings. Mask up and stay safe. From all of us at KBLA Talk 1580. Broadcasting live from Lower Park, USA. Welcome back to your home for unapologetically progressive radio, KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, She has a bachelor's from UCLA and a JD, that Juris Doctorate from Columbia Law School in New York City, a Master of Laws degree in International Criminal Law from the University of Amsterdam, and uh, the chair of the, was the chair of the California Reparations Task Force, Attorney Camila Moore, is our guest on this Freedman Friday. Um, that's wild. We were talking about your explaining how uh, some higher education institutions are now embracing a reparations model or a lineage-based model uh, to give an advantage that we might get from affirmative action now that affirmative action is illegal. And it certainly leads to the question about um, 
concerns that a lot of people have been voicing that the Supreme Court's decision around affirmative action makes reparations um, automatically unconstitutional. Yeah, and I think that's just been an unfortunate kind of misreading of the case. You know, it's really complex. Um, it's very nuanced. But, I mean, you know, mainstream media, I think, I, I, is to blame, to be quite honest, in terms of just kind of oversimplifying things. And, you know, the, the you know media is just like, the new, you got to go to a next news story, you know, the next, <laughs> you know, minute. So, yeah. you know, we talked about affirmative action that week, you know, in the mainstream media, but it kind of just went away. There was no time to really um, collectively as a nation, you know, really delve deep into the nuances and the implications of the decision. But, you know, amongst people who are in higher education, you know, they understand the nuance. And again, that that was just that article was just released by Inside Higher Education, um, November 27th. But again, it's, you know, institutions like University of Virginia, uh, Georgetown, um, other institutions that are now creating admissions programs that are nearly tailored to lineage, to descendants of slaves. So if you can write about how maybe you found through genealogy that you had an ancestor who uh, was an enslaved person who labored at the University of Virginia, right, you could um, get in, you could be considered technically a legacy applicant, just like those white folks who can say, well, my great-great-grandfather and father went to UVA, and so I should get in. It's a similar concept. It's the other side of, you know, this American legacy, you know what I mean? Yeah, it sure is. Uh, is that, do you think, um, inspired by, I think it's Georgetown that was literally admitting the descendants of people they sold to keep that university going? Yeah, so Georgetown is, is mentioned in this article, their 272 project, yes. Um, it is inspired by um, by that program. Then I also read in the, in the um, article Harvard, um, and I think another institution, they're, they're starting to, to come up with similar programs. Attorney Camila Moore, what do you say to people who say that genealogy is not an exact science? Um, so I think for genealogy, there's like two tracks of it. There's the traditional paper genealogy, which, yes, is not an exact science, right? Because you're dealing with, you know, records, right? Census records, birth records, marriage records, death records. Many of these records concedingly have been destroyed or are not present. Um, but there are, you know, many records out there. Many of them are getting digitized as we speak, like the Smithsonian um, National Museum of, of African American History and Culture. They're currently, as we speak, digitizing the Freedmen's Bureau records. So, you know, anyone can, you know, who's African-American or anyone can look up those records to see if they had family who, you know, um, got benefits from the Freeman's Bureau. Um, but then um, there's other sides to genealogy that I think has been under discussed even during the task force amongst task force members, which is, you know, genetic genealogy, which is, you know, a particular science. There's been um, huge technological advances when it comes to genetic genealogy over the past 20, 30 years um, that people like even, uh, you know, historian Henry Louis Gates um, has uh, discussed. You know, there's even his, he has his own show, Finding Your Roots, where he helps rich people. Where he helps Ben Affleck find out that he had slave, slaveholders in his family. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> and my thing is, how about we democratize that? Use that those te- technological advances for the common person, for the common African American, not just for celebrities, not just for rich people, but for our our community to, you know, um, <clears throat> it's healing to one, you know, um, um, look back, right? Saying Kofa, look back. At, um, and who, who who contribute to us in terms of our ancestors, um, you know, that's healing, that's healing work. And one, we can achieve that through the t- traditional paper genealogical route, but then there's also genetic genealogy where you, yes, you can, um, you know, spit the tube and they, it's a pretty accurate science. You know, they can, one, you know, find kind of like your ethnic makeup in a sense, but, you know, connect you to living ancestors they connect connect you to you know past regions in the United States. Like just to conclude, the ancestry dot com. If you go through them, they can tell you the exact regions in the South where your people came from. Like the early African American communities in Virginia, the early African American um, communities in Mississippi. And for the purposes of let's say a, a cash payment recommendation or benefit, that would be sufficient. Let's say you don't have the paper genealogy. Paper genealogy to show that you're a descendant of an enslaved or a black person living in the United States prior to 1900. If you are open to it, you can take, um, you know, 23andMe or Ancestry or something like that. And if it shows, okay, you have, you're connected to the early African-American communities of Virginia, that should be good. That should be sufficient. Mm, interesting. Uh, just for the record, uh, if you want to know your exact region in the the motherland, you you have to go to African ancestry because they they have the database there, right? Of um, right. of ap- the various regions in in the motherland, they have to have it in the database. I had uh, worried about um, I had worried about you know, and I and I still worry about this. People who are unhoused, pe- people who maybe um, escaped enslavement, changed their name to avoid, you know, being detected. I've I've actually talked to descendants like the Burgess brothers who, you know, their family changed their name to avoid uh, prosecution in California so their land titles might not be under, uh, you know, the names that match with uh, records in the census, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, just not a straight line. And so that's one of the things that I've been concerned about Um sort of the welfareization of reparation where, you know, the people that need it the most would be end up being the least um, likely to access it. Yeah, and to be quite honest, I'm constantly and have been constantly thinking about that, the most marginalized within the African-American community. How do we um, get them from the margins and make sure that they're, they, they don't stay on the margins when, when it comes to you know, reparations and a reparative benefit. And then also, to your point, I mean, I'm in the same boat, technically. More is not technically, you know, my, um, like, last name through, you know, through oral history and stuff like that. I found my my actual father's father's real last name was Highdale, not Mm. Moore. Wow. and so, actually, I'm related to Mark Morial of National Urban League. I never met him, but it's a long story through the High Dells in Louisiana. Um, and so, you know, you know, I'm kind of in a similar boat where, you know, but if, with people who are kind of in that similar boat, you know, that's this is the this is the power of it. Let's start talking to family. Let's start talking to friends. Let's start, you know, um, uncovering um, our roots to the extent that we can. 
Um, and if you need help, there's resources for that, right? You have the Mormon Church, right? You can go there free of cost. They have all the records to help you connect the dots. Um, and then also, you know, that genetic genealogy, that's powerful. It's extremely powerful in Henry Louis Gates' words. It can really break through um, some of the barriers um, that were in place with only paper genealogy being um, available. Um, I guess let me just say, like, let's say for the people in the margin, like homeless folks, right, folks on Skid Row, right, um, you know, they're they're suffering right now, right? What does it look like to get them, you know, like kind of going back to the Freeman's Bureau, right? In the Freeman's Bureau, there was a particular office for emergency aid, emergency need. How does, what does it look like at this present-day California Freeman Affairs Agency? You're giving emergency aid and shelter to the Black folks who need it. And, you know, in the meantime, maybe you're asking, you know, you're asking them questions about their family or you're asking if they want to take a genetic genealogy test to have them get access to some of the other benefits that this agency would provide, um, long-term benefits. But not only that, I want to just bring up this one part about genetic genealogy that's really powerful is the concept of pharmacogenetics. If you take a genetic genealogy test, you're also able to um, ascertain your pharmacogenetics. So that means you're able to, through this science, figure out particular illnesses or diseases or ailments that you're genetically predisposed to. And in that way, you're able to use your pharmacogenetics. You can go to your doctor or healthcare provider to get a nearly tailored, uniquely tailored healthcare plan. Um, and um, um, healthcare plan tailored to you, tailored to your body, tailored to right. uh, what you're genetically predisposed to. And that's very powerful because you see a lot of rich people now are now using pharmacogenetics to, you know, um, you know, get get healthcare um, um, that's nearly tailored to them, right? How does it look like for, for poor folks, for poor black folks to have an understanding? Okay, look, my pharmacogenetics says I'm predisposed to, you know, type 2 diabetes or something like that. Right. What can I do now to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future? That's something that pharmacogenetics can help with. And that's something that Black Americans can benefit from. Um, there's a lot of benefits to, to this genealogical lineage route. Um, we have a actually former a former Friedman Friday's guest, um, actor Isaiah Washington, is on the phone for you. Um, you're on the air with attorney Camila Moore. Oh, good morning. Can you guys hear me? Yep, we hear you good. Uh, 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 good morning, uh, Dominique. Thank you. Uh, hello, Camila. Uh, I've been hearing a lot about you. Also, following you on Twitter. Appreciate your work you've done. Congratulations on that. I did have a, a, a question about strict. Uh, scrutiny and what would be the overall debate-ending response to those less melanated people, non-Negroes or European ancestry people, white people, right? That say, not with my taxpayer dollars. <clears throat> that was going to be my one of my questions, and displaying a little bit more strict scrutiny and how affirmative action is a good or bad thing in terms of using lineage as an argument for obtaining reparations at a federal level. But I'm going to pin that one because, hmm, um, I'm on the advisory board for African ancestry. 
And I remember over 20 years ago, or nearly 20 years ago, that no one was interested in taking African ancestry because they thought it was snake oil. And I just kind of like, hmm, I want to make it very clear that, yes, I'm glad people are taking the pharmacology and understanding, but it sounds like you're talking about 23andMe uh, or Ancestry.com in terms of vital records, which is the massive, massive database. But I, I just can't help but uh, support Gina Page, who is doesn't have $80 million, okay? Uh, and the Rick Kittles who left, abandoned African ancestry because enough, not enough black people or rich pe- black people were taking the test and came out here to California to create 23andMe and all these other things. So I just don't want to lose the fact that even Skip Gates himself couldn't even find himself on the continent of Africa when he tried to overtake African ancestry. It's now created a whole show. So I just want to keep in mind for the audience to know that Gina Page is a, uh, uh, a sister, okay, is a melanated woman who is not getting the just... Uh, uh, support and and love that she deserves that people are, are talking about DNA. She's that's, the, that's she's the owner of African Ancestry, right? Yes, uh, she is the CEO, Which, yeah. and, and Rick Kittles moved on. It wasn't making enough money. So he moved on and created 23andMe which is not the most accurate database. And as you said, all it does is tell you about how you can stave off disease and illness. And we all know that most of that DNA is not protected like African ancestry, and they're using our DNA to figure out how they can extend European life. I just wanted to be clear on that. Mm. Thank now, you. Going back okay, to reparations. Let's let, her, let's let her respond to what you said, Isaiah Washington. Sorry, I was, well, I was going to ask if he could <laughs> repeat the first part of his question. I'm so sorry, but before you do that, I say I am a supporter of African ancestry. Me and my mother, we've taken those tests. We found that, you know, from the booby tribe um, of Equatorial Guinea and other places. So, yeah, definitely. Can you repeat the first part of the question? That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> no, but could you just, just elaborate? One, uh, what is the... As an attorney, what is the I'm on Twitter? I'm, I'm going back and forth with people now, still on your behalf, because I retweeted you guys' conversation, trying to get people to tune in. What is the 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 stopping debate to respond to people that say, "Not my taxpayer dollars. Uh, there's no slaves, so you're not paying anyone." What what? That's number one. And number two, is it a good thing for reparations or Negro reparations, or whether we use nomenclature at all? just for lineage-based reparations to get a, a good win at the federal level because of the gutting of, uh, uh, of the affirmative action. That's just good. Okay, we're going to have to get those answers when we come forward. Great questions. KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. Your ancestors' favorite radio station. Radio station. And your favorite morning show host. Let's get back to Dominique DePrima right now. now. Attorney Camilla Moore is our guest. She was the uh, chair of the California Reparations Task Force. She is an accomplished attorney um, and has been kind enough to spend the hour with us today. Um, Actor Isaiah Washington called in, asked a bunch of questions, but um, two that we ended up right before um, we took a break is... um, the the not my taxpayers dark, uh, dollars. You're not a slave. You weren't enslaved. Don't want to spend this money. He was asking for the definitive shutdown of that. That was uh, one of the questions. Well, the definitive shutdown answer is you know reparation is not 
of just for slavery is for the lingering badges that entered into slavery, the legacy of slavery as well. So just for folks who are saying, not my tax dollars, I was never a slave, uh, I was never a slave owner, you were never a slave. Well, we're talking about, we're not just talking about slavery. We're talking about post-slavery as well, where we're, there's actual evidence of the state of California in the federal government, we're talking about federally as well, discriminating against Black Americans after slavery as well, through various different industries and institutions. Um, and so just to conclude on that part, um, you know, I would just say that, you know, um, sorry, excuse me, that addressing the systemic issues that have disadvantaged African-Americans, it can lead to a more equitable and prosperous society for everyone, right? So it's imperative for the cost of reparations to be seen as an investment and not a burden, an investment in a more just and stable society. And then I also say, you know, it's a collective responsibility. Reparations is not about individual blame or guilt, right? The argument for reparations is not based on the guilt of any individual taxpayer, but it's on the responsibility of the state to rectify historical injustice. So to, to illustrate, if I were to move to Germany tomorrow, I couldn't elect to not pay into a system that provides reparations to Holocaust survivors and in, in certain instances to their descendants as well, right? I'm immigrating to a country that has a collective responsibility, a collective debt to a certain group of people. And it's my responsibility to respect that. Like, I can't elect or opt out of that. And so the same applies to African-Americans, um, those who descend from slaves, um, as well, right? You immigrate to the United States, you immigrated because, you know, of its benefits, but you also have to acknowledge the debt and the burdens that this country has to the African-American community. Okay. And then Isaiah Washington, uh, I'm going to let you restate the question about nomenclature because I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, well, I no, I, 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 you, you're very, you're very uh, kind. I just say, look, basically, um, you can't afford to pay the taxes that I have to pay into reparation because I have to pay taxes too. I've paid taxes for 30 years at the proxy wars and currently money appropriations going to Ukraine, Palestine, and Israel. So you're not happy mad about that. So just pretty much shut up about reparations. It's none of your business. It's Negro business. That's how I say it. Uh, the other part is, is that, um, I just got my answer from Rashid Littlejohn actually is that Negro is being looked at as lineage based for reparations. So. I'm kind of like online with Rasheed Littlejohn. So I got that answer to that question. Do you want to address it? Um, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but do you want to address it further, uh, Attorney Moore? Uh, no, it's okay. Thank you. All right. Appreciate the call and the support, uh, Isaiah, in letting people know about these conversations we're having on Fridays and specifically this um Really informative uh, dialogue today. Um, we just have a couple minutes here. Time flies when you're on the radio. Attorney Camilla Moore, what do you want people to know? What should we know, especially black people, our KBLA delegation, as we move to continue and grow the momentum around reparations? Yeah, so for folks who might have been trying to figure out, like, what's going on after the task force ended June 29th, you know, what are the next steps? Um, the California state legislature, they've been on, you know, a recess, but they come back um, to work essentially at the top of 2024 in January. And we're hearing rumblings that the California state legislature, particularly the California Legislative Black Caucus, 
you know, we'll be introducing, you know, a series of, you know, reparations legislation again at the top of the year when they come back. Um, um, and that's notwithstanding uh, the legislation that's already been introduced this past summer um, by State Senator Stephen Bradford called SB 490, which is actually the first reparations legislation post the task force that's been introduced by an elected official. And SB 490, that would create the California American Freedmen Affairs Agency that would you know, help to create the, the necessary infrastructure to implement many of the task force's recommendations. And so it's essential for folks to, um, you know, um, be aware of that. Um, And one, at least at this point, know who your state legislators are, right? Know who the California Legislative Black Caucus members are um, and be ready to engage them and support them um, um, when needed. Um, at the top of the year when they're, you know, introducing, you know, reparations legislation, hopefully lineage-based reparations legislation. Um, but, yes, you know, particularly SB 490, that's legislation that people should be, that should be the rallying call, really, um, for 2024, making sure that that legislation gets passed because that legislation is critical, that state agency is critical for implementing um, the rest of our recommendations and hopefully cash payments when it becomes more, I think, politically and maybe even economically feasible for the state. Attorney Camilla Moore, thank you so much for sharing your brain with us this morning. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Find her at Camilla V. Moore on uh, X. You can find us at KBLA 1580. Call me. Call me. That's what we're doing now. Let's talk about what we learned, what we didn't learn. Agree, disagree, understand, misunderstand. (laughs) Is KBLA Talk 1580.